What you doing? Designing my new 2021 Nissan Kicks Online in the Kicks Color Studio. I give each a special name. This one's electric blue, orange, red, white. I call it the gumball machine. You think it's me? I feel like you're more of a red velvet guy. Limitless possibilities. With over 100 million available color combinations and Bose Personal Plus system. In the boldly new 2021 Nissan Kicks. Bose is the registered trademark of the Bose Corporation. Color combinations include interior and exterior colors. Customization is an available feature subject to availability at participating Nissan dealers. See dealer for details. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. We have had a wonderful series of programs um, featuring our guest, who is with us again today, Ken Hartman. Uh, we're talking about life without parole, and uh, that's a sentence that Ken received a long, long time ago. But he was um, able to gain his freedom thanks to Governor Jerry Brown of California. And Ken will be out almost three years this December. So we are now talking about what life has been like for him outside of prison. And we spoke to his daughter um, last week. So I encourage people to listen from the beginning so you get the, the flow of uh, our, our podcast this month. So, Ken, welcome back to Pursuing Justice. Well, it's great to be back, Harriet. Thank All you. Right. All right. We enjoyed speaking with your daughter about what it was like for her for so very many years uh, as she visited you in prison and what it's been like for her now that you're out of prison. So what has life been like for you since you walked out, and what was the exact date of your release? Right. Um, well, I got out on December 20th, 2017. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, you know, up in the high desert of northern Los Angeles County, so it was a little bit cold. It's, kind of, mm-hmm. it's not like the rest of L.A. County. It's kind of like uh, it's, it snows up there, and it's windy, oh, and, you know. Wow. Yeah, it's a... It's although not a tremendous amount, but it does snow occasionally. It's a high desert, it does get pretty cold at night. But, um, yeah, a friend of mine came and picked me up, and uh, it was a it would to say, I I mean, the words sort of almost escaped me, but surreal, amazing, overwhelming. Um, uh, I mean, there were elements of sadness, there were elements of grief, there were elements of just absolute sheer joy. Um, it was a really, you know, astonishing day. I have actually, I've, I've actually written a uh, thing about it that I, I probably will publish sooner or later, and it's, it's about seven, eight thousand words about that one day. Oh, so, that's it was a, it was a powerful experience. It really yeah, was. I would think so. And, and in terms of um, uh, your, your thoughts about that day, did you ever imagine? that a day like that would come? No, 
I, re- I really didn't. And in fact, I mean, and I mean, and I say this not like just in some, some, and I say this not in some metaphorical way, but like literally right up to the minute I was walking out the front gate of the prison, I was certain someone was going to go, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be getting out. I mean, it was this part of me that kept saying that this is not really happening. This is a mistake of some kind. There's no way this is going to happen. You know, the, that voice was getting quieter and quieter as I got closer and closer to the gate. And I saw my, <laughs> my friend Linda uh, standing there, wait, ready to, uh, you know, with a big smile on her face, ready to hug me and, you know, and all that. But, uh, yeah, it was – I did not believe that I ever would, Harriet. I had – I had – you know, I, I've explained this to people a few different ways, but I think the best way to explain it is I gave up that hope and giving up that hope was not an easy thing. It was very, it was a very painful thing to do. And that part of me that was afraid of having that kind of hope was not letting me feel that right up to the moment I was getting out. You know, it was like, that was impossible. It can't happen. You, you know, it's so I, but you know, nevertheless it did. Very understandable. And how how did that come about, that a life sentence is a life sentence uh, in not only in California, but in every state here in the United States? So how did it happen that you were your sentence was commuted by Governor Brown? Well, basically, a few years before that, uh, some activists that I were friend, as friends with uh, said to me, um, you know, you really should file a, for a commutation of your sentence, which is a technical procedure where the governor can commute your sentence, can pardon you, all these other things. Uh, and every governor in every state of, in this country, I believe, has that power to one degree or another. And it, it's always it was always there. But of course, no one sentence had been commuted serving life without parole who came in as an adult. There had been a few people who had come in as juveniles right. whose sentences were commuted. But no one who had been an adult had been in like more than 25 years. So it mm. seemed completely like there's no possible way that could ever happen. And I, but I did file the commutation because I thought, well, you know, what have I got to lose? But I never had any faith that it would actually occur until, you know, until it did on, uh, it was actually on Good Friday uh, in, in uh, April of, of uh, 2017 is when my sentence was actually commuted. And why why such a large span of time between that would be around April, I would guess, and then mm-hmm. didn't leave till December? Right, because because what the governor did and, and what they have since done in California, because they've now commuted about 147 people who had life without parole to life with parole. He did not pardon me. He did not order me released that day. He just basically resentenced me to a standard life with parole sentence. Oh. And in California, with a life with parole sentence, you go to the board and all that sort of stuff. And a very small percentage of people who go to the board are found suitable for parole and are let out. I see. So, so only, I had to go to the board like everybody else. So only 140 people against how many would uh, that got life without parole? Uh, there are right now there are five thousand two hundred plus or minus a few uh, currently in California serving life without the possibility of parole. So you're looking at like you know, I don't know what would that be a couple of percent or something. Tiny, something like very, very, yeah, very, small. very, very, very tiny amount. Exactly. Yeah. 
And why why do you think that you were approved for release? <laughs> I, that's, I am that, that is like the hardest question for you to possibly <laughs> answer. Uh, I, I, I and I mean I say this completely honestly. There are moments when I have the foggiest idea how that could have happened. I was a giant pain in their ass for many many years. <laughs> Uh, I, as I told you, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, I was, I was in the hole nine times for political activities against them. Um, and you know, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. I, and I'm not being coy. I really don't know. Only thing I can say is, is I had made a lot of friends who among the prison activist community who respected the work that I had done from inside. And I, I would assume People spoke up for me when the time came to think about who was either going to be considered. Ultimately, five people's names were submitted to the governor from the Department of Corrections uh, to be considered. He picked three of them, and one of those three was me. Oh, boy. Very, very s- slim chance, right? Yeah. Extraordinarily slim chance. It was like, it literally was like winning the lottery. It really, I mean, it really That's was. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, now maybe it was a good thing um, between, say, April and December because, you know, how could it be that they would turn around and say, okay, you're out? Did you feel that time was important to prepare for your eventual release? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, looking back on it, I think the answer to that is probably yes, uh, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I was wholly unprepared, unprepared, you know, in any in any material way. I think I had done the the work of transformation where I was not an unsafe person to release by any stretch. But mm-hmm. uh, and I want to say there are tens of thousands of other folks who are equally safe to release. I um, certainly was not the, yeah, the only person. But, um, yeah, I, I used that time to come up with some plans and make connections and write to a lot of my friends and say, hey, I'm getting out and, you know, you know this or that jobs. And uh, a friend of mine uh, started putting money together for so I would be able to purchase a car. You know, so I, I had like a wide uh, support uh, network that stepped up that were all like, wow, you're really getting out. Can't believe that. You know, I was like, <laughs> I either, but it looks like I am. You know, so I, I created kind of like a, a a safety net before I got out. So I was very lucky to be able to do that. And yeah, that time was probably was actually useful. It didn't feel like it at the time, to be frank, Gary. It, it that, that that those months were the longest time I ever did. I bet. So, yeah, very slow moving. Yeah, I'm sure, right? Really, really slow moving. Yes. <laughs> were there um, very specific things that you did to prepare for reentry? I mean, like. Where were you going to live? How were you going to support yourself? How did how did you handle on those things? The parole board always wants to know anyway. How did you right. how did you put those together? Well, I so what I did was is I was luckily uh, was in contact with many organizations that do that kind of work. Oh, uh, okay. work that work that I do now, um, and um, was able to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I'm getting out possibly getting out. And I thought it would actually have been actually somewhat later than December. I assumed that the earliest would have been in February, but, Hmm. um, but I, but I said I could be getting out at the end of this year. Um, and I, I'm going to need to go to what they call a transition house. You can't really just as a lifer, you generally can't just parole home. Hmm. And of course I didn't really have a home to go to, you know, to be real about it. And, you know, I wasn't, I had no, no real family connections at all. 
but um you know so i was able to reach out to some places and and make some uh get some commitments from different organizations in los angeles county that were willing to take me in as a, a transitional person um and i went to a place um it was called a sober living home in uh, uh what's called the university heights area of los angeles and i spent my first five months out living there um, and, and I went from there to a friend's place up in Lancaster who had converted his garage into a, like a little studio apartment that he was going to be using for a, uh, uh, Airbnb. And mm-hmm. he said, he goes, you, he said, look, you know, we've been friends for a long time. You can stay here as long as you want rent free. So I had a, so I was very, very lucky. Oh, I had a tremendous boy. amount of support. I was able to land pretty you know, pretty solidly on both feet. And I was working two weeks after I got out, I was already working. So I, 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 I'm like, I had all of the advantages of building a strong network of support over many, many years without ever realizing that it would be for that. I just did it because I like to have friends, frankly, you know? So, I mean, that's, yeah, you know. Terrific. Now you said you were working two weeks after you got out. What were you doing? Uh, I was a hired as a uh, grant proposal writer and development coordinator for a nonprofit in Los Angeles called Jail Guitar Doors. They huh. do uh, rehabilitative work inside the prison system using music as sort of the method of uh, rehabilitation. And I had become very good friends with the executive director of that program many years before I got out. And when I told him I was getting out, he said, you want to come to work for us? And I was like, Sure. So I started working for them like two weeks after I was out. And two weeks after that, I went to work for a second organization that also did reentry and in-prison program work. So I was working for two places within a month. Oh, that and that, that doesn't happen. That's, uh, that's pretty rare, I think. Now, what, what work are you involved with right now? Is it the same as you were doing when you got out or something different? So, in many ways, it's same, the same, but but not with the same people necessarily. Um, but basically, um, I'm involved with right now. I'm I've just recently moved into a new position where I'm the advocacy coordinator for the uh, uh, transformative in prison work group. It's a really long, sort of cumbersome name, but it, it, we just call it the TPW. And I am a uh, I am involved with advocating on behalf of about 50 organizations in California, community-based organizations that provide rehabilitative, transformative, trauma-informed work inside the California prisons. Um, I'm involved with advocating for more programs, more funding, you know, trying to make things work better and get more people involved. Uh, I'm also involved with development work with that organization. I still do uh, grant proposal writing for a variety of organizations on a contract basis I mean, that was sort of like I had, I was doing grant proposal writing while I was in prison. So I already had like a very marketable skill before I got out. That was sort of that was the thing that gave me the biggest boost as far as, you know, that goes. I had it. I knew it. I had a job that people wanted to hire me for before I got out. Right. How did you learn to write grants? I've written a few and, and it's not always easy. How, how did you learn that skill? What a great skill to have. It is a great skill to have. Uh, I, I was uh, associated with someone who was an extraordinarily talented grant proposal writer who helped me uh, learn how to do it and uh, gave me a lot of invaluable uh, advice uh, for which I'm very grateful for forever. 
and uh, just helped me understand how the process works and how you write it. When I got out, I went to a couple of different training programs uh, that helped me become a better grant writer still. And um, yeah, so I, I do that. I'm actually kind of in demand. Uh, my Through my grant writing, I have raised roughly four and a half million dollars for multiple organizations since I've been out in two and a half years. That's incredible. Wow. Why, how, how come you were interested in learning about grant writing when you were in prison? To what end? Well, for one, well, I, I did. I actually sold grant writing to people. I, I did it as a business. I, oh. I mean, I didn't do it only as a business, but I mean, I so I think this is one of the things, and I don't know that we explored this very well, but you know, I helped to support my daughter while I was in prison as well. Oh. I, I I I paid for her phone. I paid for her computer. I paid for her, you know a lot of her things over the years. Uh, I was not the prime source of support for her, her mother and her mother's family were, but I did what I could. So I was constantly looking for ways to make money legitimately and legally that uh, could allow me to be as better able to support my daughter. Oh, that was my a... prime motivation while I was in prison. Now, is there a limit to how much someone in prison can make from a legitimate job that's uh, outside of the prison? Is there a cap on that amount of money? Well, I, w- I would say that that's probably, um, um, those are probably gray areas, I would say, mm-hmm. area. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what I mean? It's like pro- probably in a, like, uh, generally speaking, they probably they frown on people having real jobs and making real money. And again, it's one of those things you think they would be supportive of that. Like, you why would wouldn't you want people to make real mm-hmm. money? But like many other you would think situations, that's generally not how they view it. So, yeah. So you, you were very fortunate. That I didn't realize I was, that, uh, you know, you helped uh, with the expenses. And, and certainly that made you feel better. And then uh, I, I'm sure Aaliyah was also pleased that you, you could do that. Mm-hmm. So it worked both ways. So what what are your long-term goals as you uh, come to the third anniversary of your wonderful freedom uh, in December. What what do you see up ahead for yourself? Well, I think I'm not 100% sure. And of course, since I was in prison for 38 years, I operate by the mantra of hope for the best and expect the worst because that's <laughs> what you learn in prison. And it's a safe way of approaching life, I think. But I it, it appears that I will probably be off parole in December. Oh, um, oh, oh I forgot. I didn't realize you were still on parole. Okay. I am still on parole. I will. I think I will be off parole in December. It looks like I will. That's what my parole agent is telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess my near-term goals are to continue doing the work that I'm doing to try to make the prison system better for the folks that are still in there. Ultimately, try to make the prison system smaller so there are less folks in there. Um, you know, and continue working to advocate for, uh, you know, restorative justice and ultimately transformative justice. I'd like to see the way that we do justice in this country into something that more resembles actual justice with fairness and equity and everyone be treated as equal human beings as opposed to what we have now, which is not that, as I know you're aware. Um, You know, so, I mean, that's a big part of my short-term goals. You know, I'll be 60 years old. Um, I don't, I hope I don't have to work for the rest of my life. I would like to retire at some point. 
Um, but for the foreseeable future, I suspect I'll be doing that. I would like to write more than I have had the time to. I tell everyone all the time that the only thing I miss about prison is free time. Because <laughs> it's really very little free time out here. <laughs> right? Very, I mean, it's, it's very funny. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. And, it, and it's, it's, you know, and it's, it, the, re, the reality is the world out here is moves very fast. There's, I'm drawn into like a million directions. I speak at colleges. I was until the pandemic started speaking at colleges. I, I would like to go back to speaking at colleges at some point when the uh, pandemic is over, hopefully in the not too distant future. Um, I would like to travel. I, I went to Norway and Finland while I was on parole to tour prisons in Norway and Finland and look at how they, oh, how wow. they do their prison system. I know it was a pretty, pretty uh, uh, surprising thing for me. I didn't think that could ever really happen, but it did. Um, how did you know, happen? so I would like to, well, I, an organization, sure. An organization in California called impact justice, um, reached out to me and said, would you be interested in going on a tour of the prisons in Finland and Norway, and then speaking to, um, you know, speaking to folks afterwards about that. And I said, sure, why not? I'm, I'll be happy to do that. Never thinking that it could really happen. Mm. Again, one of those like, there's no way they can do that. I <laughs> thought it was illegal for me to have a passport. As it turned out, it's not illegal oh. for me to have a passport. I have a passport now. It is illegal for me to travel outside of the country without telling them and getting permission first while I'm on parole. But sure. But I, you know, it, I, I applied for it and, um, the people up in Sacramento approved it. And, and there were actually four of us, the formerly incarcerated people were actually on the journey along with a bunch of legislators and, uh, activists and, you know, people in the, uh, prison reform community. And we, we toured five different prisons in Norway and Finland. And uh, it was quite, it was really quite an eye-opening experience to see prisons where people are treated much more like human beings. It really oh, was. Yeah. It, it, so it is doable. It is yeah. doable. Oh, it is absolutely. When did you do that trip? That would have been uh, late last year, actually. Yeah. Oh, almost a year ago. Yeah. It, and yeah. and what, what, uh, what stood out uh, while well, you just said it about the treatment of people? I, I know, I know how different the prisons in Norway uh, are, but was that the most um, enlightening thing that you took away from what you saw in Norway and Finland? Well, I mean, I, I guess maybe like that's sort of like the fundamental thing, but like some of the little things that stick out in my mind, I'll tell you too quickly. Uh, but one of them is that the, the people in the prisons there and the people who work in the prisons refer to each other by their first names like normal people do. Hi, Jim. Hello, Bob. You mm -hmm. know, I know. Right? Who can imagine that in an American prison? Never. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and the other thing that I think is a little more like a profound and bigger in Norway and Finland, it is illegal for anyone to publish that someone has been in prison. That mm -hmm. is actually considered to be a crime to uh, out someone who was in prison. They, they're, it, and, and I think that's a really remarkable thing when you step back and think about the way we do it in this country, where, you know, we try to paint people with the, you know, with the scarlet letter for the rest of their lives that's and right. bar them from getting jobs and living in different places and all that. You know, uh, they they do keep a central record. And of course, if you were trying to become a cop or a fireman or something like that, they would check. But it but for the generally speaking, it is completely confidential. And when you're done doing your time, you're done. You go out, you're, you're done. done. You're done. 
and you are allowed to resume your life and, and be a human being like everybody else, which I think is a really powerful and remarkable thing. Yeah, uh, they're very impressive, um, Norway. Very, very impressive. I've seen some films about their prisons, and uh, yep. they're just so different from ours. So very, very yeah. different. Yep. Well, yep. that that is a, a wonderful way to close our our final interview on maybe the hope that we will learn from what is working in other countries. There's much that we could learn. That is for sure. It has been so delightful and wonderful to have you on our podcast for uh, three segments and also to have Aaliyah on uh, to tell us about her her thoughts and her perspective. I thank you so very, very much for your willingness to do this. And I wish you so much uh, good, good, uh, so many good experiences up ahead, good health. Uh, everything, long life. You you certainly deserve it, Ken. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Harriet. I've had a great time talking to you, and uh, I appreciate all the good work you're doing. Really uh, good. Thank you very much. And before we, we close today, I wanted to tell our listeners um, a little bit about our next guest, um, who is Jim McCloskey. He is the founder of Centurion Ministries, the very first Innocence Project possibly in the world, certainly in the United States, because he did this almost 10 years ahead of Barry Sheck and The Innocence Project. So um, that uh, project is located in Princeton, New Jersey. It was started in the early 80s, and uh, he will be our guest next time. So please tune in to Pursuing Justice. It was wonderful to have Ken and Aaliyah with us today. Uh, in, in the last few weeks, and uh, we hope you'll keep listening. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye from Harriet Hendel and Pursuing Justice. Mm-hmm.